Welcome to Physician Residency Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. This is your host, Tammy Kraus. Today, we're going to focus on burnout. Over the past two years, I would suspect most physicians have felt this at one time or another. There are so many causes that can lead to this feeling of emotional exhaustion, compassion fatigue, decreased job satisfaction, or even depression. I think it's important that we talk about this openly and honestly, as physicians have the highest suicide rate of any group in the United States. We will talk with three physicians who found themselves in this situation. Each of them found a different solution to help find balance in their lives again. Please let me introduce you to Dr. Stephanie Ellison, Dr. Nurev Shottery, and Dr. Daniel Kataxinos. Thank you all for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. I was just going to have each of you share a little bit about yourselves, maybe tell us the type of medicine that you practice and your story on how you developed burnout and the things that led you to that point. Let's start with you, Dr. Ellison. Hi, my name is Stephanie Ellison. I'm an emergency physician at University Health Truman Medical Center, and I've been there for over 20 years. And I have a leadership position at UMKC School of Medicine as well. And I had found previously that teaching and doing a lot outside of my department really kept things new and fresh and exciting. And as the work got harder and harder, I would check myself at the door and I would find it harder and harder to walk in. I felt like the day was overwhelming. I felt like the emergency department was overwhelming and it felt like everywhere I turned, I just could not meet all the goals. I think I had that day and I wasn't sleeping well. And as I took inventory, I wasn't even doing the things I was asking my patients to do. So in 2017, I actually switched my leadership position, which helped a lot. I feel very supported by both institutions. And so I think that's an exception and wonderful that when I said like, this is just not going as well as I would like it to, that helped. And then when the pandemic landed, I was watching the learners, the residents, the students struggling as well. And so my frustration was, is that patients were coming to me and I was responding to such sick patients. So What I did is I started to get much more involved in service learning and community engagement events so that I could go and help prevent and then also engage with the learners who've always kept medicine so exciting for me. And that was my way back through and kind of defined my why and my passion in helping others. And it provided that balance for me. That's not the whole story, but that's what I did for two and a half, three years. There's an event today where they're doing COVID testing. I've been receiving texts from students. So that excitement of really going out in the community and helping is what helped me back out of that state of burnout I was struggling with. That's wonderful. And then Dr. Kataxinos, can you kind of tell us your story and how you ended up with the burnout sensation that you had? Yeah, I am primarily a hospitalist. I will do some primary care from time to time. I graduated residency in 2012, immediately had a job as a permanent hospitalist here in Portland, Oregon. About, I would say probably four years in, I started experiencing extreme burnout. There was a shift from a high level of autonomy at the hospital that I was at. I would say more and more expectations as far as metrics go that didn't necessarily have measurable positive outcomes for patient care or length of stay or preventing repeat admissions. As that continued, I was about six and a half years in and I thought, oh God, I got to do this for another 20 some odd years. I got (laughs) to figure out what the solution is here. 
So I went locums and now I'm a full-time locums. I've been a full-time locum since 2019. I am credentialed with most of the hospital systems here in Portland and Salem. Also go out to central Oregon. I work in Washington, in Colorado. And I have learned that when I'm at work, I'm at work. I'm very focused on my patients. I have a tendency of wearing my earbuds and listening to the Grateful Dead station while I'm charting. I will empathetically listen to the permanents and the struggles they are facing at that time, but it's very similar struggles from place to place that I go and things that I dealt with as a permanent as well. And then when I've hit my max on empathy with colleagues, that's when I typically will turn around and put the Grateful Dead station on and focus. It sounds refreshing. <laughs> Just yeah, tune it out. Yeah. And then in my off time, is strictly my off time. I will occasionally schedule like an afternoon that I log in remotely to catch up on CDI queries or if there was any questions, whatever I might have to do. But that is on a very specific day. Otherwise, my days off are for friends, family, or training for whether it's a competitive cycling event or mountaineering, my life goals are paramount in my personal life. And Dr. Shottery, can you tell us about you a little bit? Yeah, I would say mine probably started probably over a decade ago, similar to many other people's stories of their own, you know, waking up to a job where I hated or just dreaded going into work. And this is in relation to jobs I've had in the past where I felt privileged to go to work. And then trying to figure out solutions, I literally made a to-do list of what I thought would be criteria needed to know that I needed to make a change. And over time, started checking them off. And then one day realized I had actually checked them all off and quit my job, realizing, you know, there's no reason anymore to have to struggle waking up and being so distraught having to go to work. And so from that, actually, I went back to doing locums myself, and I did that for quite some time, and just recently actually kind of left that again, trying to figure out my own pathway out of this, you know, somewhere between burnout and something smoldering, and some altruistic nature in there as a pediatric hospitalist trying to figure out how do I make some positive change and still feel good about what I do. I think 2019, 20, I took a year off and I did an accelerated culinary medicine program to become a chef, you know, with all my years, with all of us seeing all the food that's served in the hospital, you know, is this something from a preventative medicine standpoint that might be something beneficial? It is unfortunate, of course, during the program to indirectly learn, you know, how hospitals works and hospital food systems works and catering. And this pathway may not be as simple as I think, as far as just helping a hospital figure out their foods and they're not really making it themselves. They don't focus much on nutrition, unfortunately. So I'm actually finishing also another certification in culinary medicine to try and link the two together. Along with that, in a roundabout, and we'll see long-term if it tends to be the right choice, I actually have left locum life to work more hours and make less money in academia. With this idea, as well as what Stephanie had talked about, you know, I'm hoping that working with students and residents will be that drive and push back to making medicine feel like the career it is versus the job I think I made it to being to be able to go in every day and work. 
Did you always have a passion for culinary type things and then combine that into your medical career? Or how did you go down that pathway? Yeah, I think overall, I've enjoyed cooking always, you know, having having a mom who made great food made it also good. But then any of us who've ever had a dinner party or something happens and people are like, oh, the food is good, you know, and you enjoy what you eat versus what's coming from the restaurant. And I figured not only would culinary school give me the skills and techniques and the knowledge, which is really more about techniques than it is about recipes. I tell people I know no recipes, but I've learned quite a lot about heat control and technique. You know, I think having gone through it also leaves the credentials, which, you know, I think in whatever industry you end up in, being able to say physician and chef carries more weight than physician and cook. Now, do you do this for one facility or are you doing it for a community or how are you incorporating that? So that's actually coming to where part of the problems and the uphill battles are right now. Having recognized again, the hospital nature side of things, as far as the catering services, I'm trying to work in a different sort of pathway right now, where through some of the residents and on my own, you know, reaching out to like the regional food banks or some of the farmers markets and seeing, is there a role in there for helping to, you know, develop recipes Maybe if the regional food bank is giving a weekly amount of these vegetables and fruits or whatever, you know, if there's enough knowledge ahead of time, can you take that and turn it into something to then hand out along with those to say, hey, these are things you can do with it. I definitely had an awakening in culinary school of seeing raw product and being very embarrassed that here I am, somebody who's relatively affluent as far as being in medicine, and I don't even recognize the vegetable that's in front of me that I probably could in the store but not in its raw naked form. So what are these families doing, especially families who may be strapped for money themselves? You know, how do I convince them to take the long view of saying, instead of eating up five days a week, how about, can you cook home too? You know, and then how do you use the food? How do you deal with this? You know, sustainability, costing and not living out of cans and fast food. It's an uphill battle and it's probably going to stay an uphill battle for now. Unfortunately, not as much money into this as preventative medicine goes. Pediatrics and preventative medicine and food like this, it's a niche. It's a niche topic still. Gotcha. Stephanie, I think you deal quite a bit with food insecurity and community gardens as well. Have you found any of the same problems in what you're dealing with? Yes. And Nerev, you're speaking my language. As part of all of this, you find this group of people who want to help in the purest way. And you describe it very well, just introducing joy in medicine again. And sometimes that takes a step back to figure out these skills and talents that you have, and then ways to really spread that around so that we really start to reinforce the health in patients. And it's true. I'm in Kansas City. I should have mentioned that. And we have this really nice health science campus. We have Children's Mercy Hospital, which has some property across the street from our county hospital for adults. And the whole campus itself has four professional schools, medical school, dental school, pharmacy school, and a nursing school. We have 10 programs that include a PA program, a master's in science and anesthesia, two graduate nursing programs. So we have a really wonderful interprofessional campus. And they became a health science district about six years ago. And then I got to meet these great people that I didn't intersect with in medicine. It was because of my interest in food insecurity. So we have a pop-up food farmer's market at the health department, which is on our campus. We have one on our hospital campus. And I started the whole idea of a garden and Children's Mercy was way ahead of me and allowed me to join their team. 
And so we've had a community garden. We started in end of 17. So we've rounded out, it will be almost five years now. And we just planted 17 fruit trees as part of Giving Grow. They will donate the trees if we can continue to nurture them and apples and some different fruits that we can distribute. Very much like what you describe, our main campus at University of Missouri, Kansas City had a pantry, but a lot of different things they could distribute from harvesters weren't being utilized or the clients just didn't know what to do with them. So a lot of our students got together and created recipes for whatever ingredients we had. And sometimes you had to get one or two additional things. Pecani sauce is the thing you can make the most out of our garden. We have lots of tomatoes. We have lots of peppers. We do a few shallots, but we don't do full onions or anything. But we've put out those recipes cabbage was very large and very big crop. And so we had a lot of different cabbage soup, different ideas. Kale is not loved by many, but we set out the recipe for kale chips. And a lot of people tried it for the first time, even those that were on the garden campus. So we've made over a ton of vegetables and some fruits as of last year, tomatoes are our only fruit so far. And then we, again, also found food insecurity on our campus. Most university campuses, including undergraduate and graduate, around 17 to 18%. Our campus was 30% in 2016. So I joined the Food Security Task Force just to be with those same like-minded people. And then also to make sure that our health science campus was considered, because we are about a mile and a half to the north of the main campus. And that's when the garden was also really revving up. And a lot of students said, hey, can I take some of this? So I could see some of that food insecurity as well. We had a soft opening on November 11th of our health science pantry. And we're considered a satellite pantry, but we distribute 1,600 pounds of food a month. And I said, when do we consider we're just a pantry pantry? (laughs) And that's with the generous donations of a lot of alumni and time by faculty and staff, as well as students. Students actually take a service learning elective with me. So they donate a tuition-based block where they do a lot of this work and then pick up the food on main campus and distribute it in our pantry. We've added a refrigerator and a freezer, and they were full as of Friday morning when I finished my night shift. And what I find is I'm so energized by that. Like I work a night shift and I'm like, I'm going to my pantry and our night shifts are not easy. We are level one trauma center. And before and after, I just felt so inspired. And like, I don't know the actual end result of how much I did with other students, but it's bonded me with students and other faculty and staff in a way curriculum didn't. And it's amazing who just shows up. I've met wonderful primary physicians who are like, what do you need? I have coffee. We always need coffee and our grant won't pay for it. And they said, well, what else do you need that's healthy? And I was like, bananas. You know, I can just ask for anything and it shows up on the dock and we stock it. And it's like Christmas every day. (laughs) And I feel a little bit selfish. I feel a little bit like I can't feel good about this, but I have had feedback both anonymously and from students who have said that I really didn't know where the next thing was going to come from. And I was considering leaving school. There may be many other stories like that, but that's it. Even just for one of those, this pantry made a difference or that they were on surgery and the cafeteria closed and they had no access to food that was affordable. We all know prices have gone up and they can go over and get ramen noodles, which isn't that healthy, but we have oranges, we have apples, we have canned vegetables, we have frozen vegetables, we have frozen fruit some of the time. I even got ice cream a couple of times. So every student, I just want to be able to nourish them as they're learning. And a lot of the students come over from pathology and farm and are so excited to have something and they'll grab those bags of cherry tomatoes and like, yes. And I get to see that. I get to see them nourish their minds and their bodies and not worry about going to the grocery store today. 
And I kind of call it a time deficit too. The residents are definitely time deficit. They're not money deficit, they're time deficit. We've talked a lot about that and we're opening a pantry in the hospital now for patients, but we want to make sure that it serves staff and the residents and fellows who are caring for patients 24 hours a day. That's a unique thing about our pantry. And so we're just continuing our reach until we recognize we're meeting the needs of all of our people in the hospital and hopefully reducing their stress. And at the same time, it improves our joy in medicine, I think. I love that you guys have found these unique ways to energize yourself at work, to help others, whether that be, you know, fellow residents, students, doctors, or your patients. I had a couple of you talk about locums, you know, trying to avoid those administrative reasons that cause the burnout. What about personal things? Have you changed anything in your personal life? Are you doing more activities? I think Danny, maybe you had mentioned home remodeling to me when we were talking before. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly remodeling, I think that consumes your brain constantly. And frankly, I have found there are times that if I had a emotionally draining patient encounter, when I leave the room, Even before I start charting, I give myself a few moments to look at Etsy and get inspired on ideas for home so that I can change my attitude before I start charting. (laughs) But yeah, I've done quite a bit of remodeling. You guys talking about food in the garden, I could talk about food all day. I'm Greek. I had, you know, Greek parents. So like we can talk food all day long if you would like. And something that was really cool that I got invested in, in residency was actually, so I did my residency in Chicago was some of the nonprofits that did guerrilla gardening, rooftop gardening, and getting residents of the South side involved with gardening in their own community, especially the students, because I was already donating my time to help kids who were living in the South side, going to school in the South side, helping them out with their science projects. And a friend of mine was working for a nonprofit, was thinking about starting his own. I was working on my master's in public health as I was doing my residency. That was truly the first time I'd ever heard about things like food deserts. And I'll never forget our conversation. I'm like explaining to him from the textbook what a food desert is and how silly I felt in clinic explaining to patients how they needed to eat and not being sensitive enough to realize they just don't even have access to those foods. And so we did a lot of research and ultimately he ended up starting a nonprofit organization for rooftop gardening and guerrilla gardening. It was a really cool project. And with that, when I was working in Cambodia, I was able to work with a senator of Sihanoukville, Senator Mong, and basically help him start some rooftop gardening projects in the Sihanoukville region. So absolutely a huge passion project as far as growing your own and and living in Portland. We love to grow our own. I mean, it's almost, you don't have a well-groomed lawn in Portland. Your front yard is how much kale did you grow? How much (laughs) Brussels sprouts were you growing? So yeah, gardening is a huge deal for us and fresh food farm to table is a way of life for us out here. Nura, do you have anything outside of work that you enjoy doing that you feel helps, you know, relieve some of that burnout? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people in medicine, regardless of what field you're in, I think a lot of us have developed some alternatives in there for some of it is cooking. Some of it is other activities for myself. I mean, I do like writing. I mean, I have a 
personal blog, which unfortunately the website's down right now. I got to fix that. But, you know, I use it as a stream of consciousness online journal, basically, you know, as far as writing whatever I want. And in some ways, it's been good to be able to reflect back on some things that I've written over time to say, you know, where am I at now compared to when I wrote that back then? Or finding stream of consciousness, at least it's less filtered and edited. It's actually what's coming out of my head. Other than that, you know, working on Although it's the new hot topics of, you know, as far as meditation and things like that go, I think that was one of the things when I shifted from career in medicine to job that I needed to find peace within myself to begin with, to justify that notion, you know, because I think, you know, at least depending on your generation, it's one of those, it's the career in medicine, you were supposed to die doing this. That's what we do. And to now say that it's my job till I get paid feels wrong inside versus newer generations, I think they're easier to look at as a job. I mean, this is what they do. They'll hop around, they'll find a different job, they'll find a different position. Maybe, you know, they're better at advocating for their own selves than I think some of us are. So yeah, definitely found some great authors. I think probably my favorite is still going to be Pima Children. Between some of her audio stuff that she's done and some of her books, definitely has shifted the way I think and look at life, for better or for worse. I mean, I think there's Some people have a difficult time with some of these concepts of recognizing, you know, getting upset with things is not always the right choice or being more open-minded and aware of somebody else's viewpoints. These are all modern topics that are coming back out again, but these have been old Buddhist concepts and ideas for, for such a long time. Working in my gardening also, but I also have a black hand. I could probably kill any plant in my house, I think, with very little effort. I think the cacti might be dead. I'm not sure. But yeah, no, reading, writing, trying to not always think about work all the time. And Stephanie, I know we caught you actually at a swim meet. Do you have a lot of family activities outside of work or what do you enjoy that, you know, kind of relieves the stress of work? Yeah. Thanks for asking. All three of our daughters used to swim, but our youngest is the one who swims and she's 13 and she's an elite swimmer. So it takes Friday, all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday. And I work half the weekends, half the holidays as an emergency physician. I think people forget that they're like, oh, you're always off. And so it's really tough to make time for this. My husband's a surgeon. He's on call every third weekend. They've reduced from five partners to three. And so we get a Scott and Stephanie weekend about every three months. It's really difficult, but what I do is I just, you know, you have to shuffle the schedule a lot and be highly organized, but our oldest daughter met us to watch our youngest daughter and we took a walk together and I offered to buy her a cup of coffee and we were laughing and talking in no time. And so we just really try to take joy in those little moments that we can steal. She's going off to college next year. So I feel I'm stealing lots of moments where I can, but just trying to stay engaged with the kids because they're so busy and being there for those moments when they want to talk and, you know, kind of pat myself awake to make sure I'm listening. And my husband does a great job of partnering at that as well, because raising teenagers in this day and age is difficult. We want to make sure we're there for them. My parents moved here November of 20, and it's equal parts me taking care of them a little bit, but I'm always amazed at my mom sending me texts and rooting on little things like, how can I help? And who can I pick up? And I'm taking so-and-so for ice cream and I really take joy in those moments that they're so willing to help. And so I used to be a runner. My joints just don't do it anymore. I've shifted to yoga. I don't have back pain anymore. I think I attribute that to yoga, but also the stress relief of yoga. I took on meditation. I'm not a meditation personality, 
And I went outside my comfort zone and I find such great relief in that. And then journaling, I've been journaling quite a bit just to see it on paper and process it. And then I do something similar where I go to my happy place. Like the ER just gets so overwhelming and I just kind of close my eyes and the residents and students know like, oh, well, wait, we're not going to talk to her right now just yet. Cause there's always a line of people at EKGs to read. And I go to my happy place and it's usually a vineyard with my husband or we took on paddle boarding right when the pandemic started and we are like, let's do something fun. We don't go to this lake very much. We were biking there a lot. And then I just imagined the last time I was on a paddleboard with any of our three daughters or my husband and our dogs. And then they can tell my eyes, I'm back away from my happy place. I've sort of reset. <laughs> and then before the end of the shift, I try to schedule the next time I'm going to do yoga or the next time I get to get on the paddleboard so that we always make time for those things. And the girls are really great at like, Hey, do you want to do this? 5 30 in the morning. Yeah, let's go for a walk. We just adopted a dog again in December and we take these glorious walks all the time. I let them just pull me along. He was just on my lap a minute ago. And I find that when I play with them, I get the oxytocin dump I don't get from little kids anymore. And I was like, that's what that is. It's that nurturing thing that I need. We just really take time where we can. And sometimes we can't. So we just make sure we book that time together in the evening around meals and things. Have any of you found success in changing some of those factors that burn us out at work, whether that be the EMR, administrative requirements, difficult families? Have any of you guys had success in any of those types of things, or do you just find it from within? The EMR, when Epic was first rolled out in the Portland area, I became a super user and I was actually familiar with it in Chicago. And I taught a lot of classes to physicians on how to optimize being contracted at 15 different hospitals, most of which are either Epic or Cerner. One thing that I'm a huge advocate for is to learn the electronic medical record system inside and out and make as many shorthand shortcuts as possible, you know, for your bread and butter admissions, have an assessment and plan ready to go. That is a dot phrase for you that you just have to fill in very quickly. If you don't do dragon already, but things like that, optimizing communication with nurses, like setting an expectation as a hospitalist. I know that's totally different for like in the emergency room or whatnot, but as a hospitalist, when I practice consistency, I will call you when I ran on this patient. It reduces the number of pages and calls and interruptions that I receive pre-rounding or before I see the patient. And I think that close communication with the nurses and that close relationship. I'm frequently available charting at the nurse's station so that if they need to talk to me, that's fine. Generally, when I find them before I go into the room, then we can talk about the biggest things that we need to talk about at that time. And I think that helps them a lot. Honestly, one thing that I've noticed in myself is maybe the maturity of how I process things. I remember being a med student and a resident and being fired up and I'm going to change all these things when I become a practicing attending. And then the first five years of being an attending, I was part of all these committees. I knew best how to make everything more efficient. And that certainly, I burned myself out by doing that. And I think I looked at physicians who had 
years and experience above me thinking, oh, you're burned out. You don't care about this passionate issue that I have in the moment. And if there's any advice I can say to the med students and the residents and the new attendings would be pace yourself, man. (laughs) It's a marathon and you're going to find out some of these things that you thought were so important before maybe not so important now. And certainly after surviving the pandemic, my attitude has changed significantly about what would have previously been something that fired me up. Now I'm like, "Ah, it's all good, man. If that's the worst problem we're facing today, we're doing okay. And I seem to say that mantra quite a bit. I think learning how to say no has been more beneficial to me than anything, you know, no, I don't want to be on another committee. No, I don't want an extra shift that has saved me quite a few times. Actually, everything Danny just said is true. So I'm in my new position since about December in academic medicine. And, you know, I'm not making as many changes only because I recognize at institutions, they have a long-standing traditional way of doing things. And I'm not necessarily here to rock that boat too deeply. But I still have ideas for what, you know, a locum career does give you such great exposure to so many different ways of doing things. I also then recognize that I really have no great way of doing anything because it depends on your system and the resources and the people and everything at that moment. And that's one thing I'll talk to residents about is, you know, a lot of these things are stylistic differences between attendings. You know, I might do something different the way another attending might do things. That's great learning for them as much as it is infuriating because they would like some consistency, but that's medicine. There's not always the best pathway to get down. I describe it as, you know, being a teaching attending is like bumper bowling. There's many ways of getting that ball down there. My job is there to be there at the edges to kind of pull you back in, to not have you crash over the side at least. But, you know, dealing with families, I mean, pediatrics, we have families to deal with, not only with the children and, you know, especially with many of our parents, patients who are nonverbal because of their age or for whatever other reasons, there's still a large amount of educated, strong guessing based on what we think and see in exams and so forth. Going back to the meditation, I think that's been very helpful dealing with families sometimes. And, you know, once again, recognizing we don't always know where they're coming from. You know, what are they dealing with at home? The mom who says that she was worried for her kid and there's no local hospital or not one that she trusts. And so she had to Uber to the hospital an hour away. Now, how is she going to get home? How is she going to deal with this? Is she comfortably being discharged? I mean, unless you ask the question, you don't know why she's stressed out being there. And I think we've all done it on our own aspect of things where somebody may have misinterpreted our actions or our words. More so now when it comes to text messaging, somebody forgets to put the right emoji, you can have a whole different conversation. I think it helps to have that two-way recognition that not only do I not know where they are always coming from, there's a level of checking myself to know where am I today? Did I not get enough sleep because I was getting residents sign out to run over patients in the morning and I'm a little bit sleepy? Am I a little bit short this morning? Am I not smiling as much to the families to make them realize I'm actually engaged in here, crossing your arms or doing, you know, those nonverbal cues, how we present ourselves. I think it's still a constant battle every day of just trying to stay on top of who you are and to keep doing as good as you can. Anything with you, Stephanie, that you've been able to affect change? As kind of anticipated as COVID numbers came down, mental health issues went up. Alcohol and drug abuse went up, and we are definitely seeing more violent assaults in the ED. 
So much so that one of my favorite security officers said, I went over to the Center for Behavioral Medicine where I could take a break. And I said to the mental health hospital, and he said, yep. And so I've watched that stress build in all of the professionals that help provide care. I mean, security officers, pastoral care, respiratory therapists, and they're amazing. They're amazing. And at every level, just kind of helping us pull together as a team, because there's going to become a weak spot no matter what we do. And so we do practice very interprofessionally. Instead of going to a rounding room, just the doctors, I love it. We couldn't do that anymore. So we're at the desk, at the bedside. We go see ambulances with the nurses now. We make decisions about how much the room needed to be cleaned. And I loved it because the collaboration was so much deeper. And what's even more impressive is pastoral care is there more. They don't just bless us on certain days and offer. We actually took over our chapel for our masks. And so they found somewhere else and they just go everywhere and they check in on us. We're talking about an interprofessional support group where we can reach out to one another and kind of more socially support one another. We also developed this staff support system even before the pandemic for some of the violent issues that were coming up and feeling unsafe in our environment. And so that's continued. And then more recently, my past chair is now, he became the chair for wellness. And now he actually received COVID as his next project because that happened about three months later. And he has developed a peer support program. And so a number of us have signed up to be trained. It's based mostly on like the AMA Joy in Medicine report. It's based on the well-being playbook and then the resource compendium from the National Academy of Medicine. I'm the first person to say, is it interprofessional? Can we counsel anyone? And he, of course, said, well, right now we're starting with physicians because physicians, when they ask for peer support, we desperately know what happens when we report if we're depressed or what happens if we report if we are abusing drugs or alcohol. But likewise, we're in the environment together. And so we should be able to go to one another and counsel one another. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I know my limits, I think. And then there's a system in place. We have a psychologist who's heavily involved in one of our psychiatrists so that we don't try to treat or fix, which is sort of the notion of all of us, right? Is that we're there just in support and to listen openly and apply some of those skills that I think we have with patients. However, I'm an acute care physician, I'm an emergency physician. So I tend to cut to the chase and things like that. But in these moments, we wanted to find private, quiet time and then know when we have to report. And there are a few situations where we have to report, but in all ways, it's confidential and it's physician to physician. I'm so glad I had the chance to train because I'll go to the doctor's lounge, 8 p.m. My shift ends at midnight. I just need a moment. And there's two other physicians, radiologist and internal medicine physician who clearly need the same moment. I'm like, it's eight. And like, I know I just, the job never ends. It's not done. And we've decompressed and talked to each other across departments and specialties. And we all left feeling better. I even ran to him again. I was like, how are you doing? Like so much better. It just telling our stories and supporting one another can be so powerful. And so I'm very flattered. I get to do this and learn a lot in the meantime. And then I think we'll do a little bit better um, across all of our professionals if we do this. I know one of my colleagues had actually applied for, I think it was additional life insurance. And one of the questions was, have you ever had a mental health issue? Did you seek counseling? And when she answered yes, truthfully to that question, they required her to turn in all of the counseling notes. And that was just horrifying to me. So I'm glad you brought that up. There is a place called the Physician Support Line, and they are available from 8 a.m. to 1 a.m., seven days a week. That's Eastern Standard Time. And they're staffed by volunteer psychiatrists, medical students, and other physicians. 
It's absolutely free. It's anonymous. They do not report to any regulating agency or board. You can talk about any topic that you want to. It doesn't have to be necessarily a crisis, but it is anonymous. That number is 1-888-409-0141. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think there's so many factors that bring us to this point of feeling burnout, depression, dissatisfaction with our jobs. And each of you have just been so eloquent in telling us what you felt and how you actually got yourselves out of it. So thank you so much for coming on my show. I so appreciate all of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you, Danny and Nerev. Like you gave me other wonderful ideas and you're doing amazing things where you are. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And thank you to all of the listeners who tune in each week. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the locum's lifestyle, disability insurance, and more on contract negotiation. So I hope you'll all join me next week on Grand Rounds. 